might be. Well, there's limitations to when one should apply a skeptical approach. Mm, okay. Talk, talk, talk to well, me about that. If you have a guest in your house right. and you want to know whether that guest would like a cup of tea, you have to have trust. Scien scientific method is the wrong way uh. to figure out whether your guest wants a cup of tea. And you should just ask <laughs> right. and, and not be skeptical oh, okay. when the guest says, I'll have one sugar, please. So welcome to Knowing and Believing podcast where we dive a little bit deeper into what we know and believe or think we know and hope we believe or who knows. <laughs> um, I've taken the odd step kind of of putting an ad on Craigslist and to see who wants to talk about belief, God or the non-existence of God or whatever else. And Aviv was the first person to respond and the first person I'm sitting down with. And this is really the first we've spoken. So I'm kind of excited to see what happens. <laughs> it's, uh, it's kind of a little bit of a take on with my Christian background, uh, people would always kind of like, friend, what do you believe? While not really genuinely concerned with hearing your position and maybe adjusting your own as much as a bait and switch situation where it's kind of like, tell me what you believe. Oh, that's nice. Well, here's what I really believe and what I'm going to make you believe. This to me seems like a kind of a opportunity to genuinely have this conversation and to see what other people believe. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate you uh, responding to the uh, ad and coming in today to sit down and talk. So my pleasure. Uh, Aviv, and you work in the mental health field. Yes. And uh, brave enough to come and meet a stranger and talk about the existence, non-existence, or unknown existence of God. Tell me a little bit about yourself and, and why you're here. A little about myself. That's a broad question. <laughs> yeah. I live in Portland. Yeah. I work in mental health. Uh, I play music. Oh, cool. What and kind of music do you play? I play the cello, oh. and I studied jazz, and just because I'm a cellist, I also play some classical, and nice. I play rock and roll as well. Cool. On the cello? On the cello. Oh. Electric cello, or? I have an electric cello. Oh, cool. Cool. Um, so how did you get interested in these more existential questions, and, and what's, your, what's your background in, in, in process of coming to actually caring enough to talk about these mm. things. I'll try and keep it as short as possible. Eh, it's a podcast. Yeah. We can go on forever. <laughs> okay, good, good. Um, so I grew up in a Jewish household, okay. believing in Judaism. Practiced Judaism, observed the Sabbath, degree, kosher, all the whole nine I'd yards. I'd say grew up in a conservative-affiliated synagogue. Mm -hmm. Wasn't all that strict about it, but, but I believed in it, and I practiced yeah. Some of it. I come from a Seventh-day Adventist background, and we would, I would tell people, like, well, Seventh-day Adventists are kind of like normal Protestants with some Judaism sprinkled in there, because we followed some of the Jewish health laws and fancied ourselves as observing the Sabbath. So, <laughs> odd. And then sometime in the summer of my 18th birthday, can't remember if it was before the birthday or after the birthday, mm -hmm. atheism came to me by way of revelation. Oh. Didn't ask for it. Yeah. yeah. I didn't ask for it. Mm -hmm. I didn't want it. But I was reading a book by Isaac Bash Bashevis Singer 
called A Little Boy in Search of God. Mm-hmm. And it was a memoir of his own crisis of faith, so to speak, in which he was asking himself about God's existence. And I realized, there I am, I'm almost 18, and I never really gave serious consideration to the question, to does God exist? Right. And then the answer just came to me, no. So in as quick as asking yourself the question, the answer came to you that yeah. quick. Wow. How, why do you think that was so easily arri- arrived at? That's interesting. I wouldn't say it arrived quickly, not easily, because it was mm. a rather unpleasant experience. I can vouch for that. <laughs> um, but I have no explanation as to why that, mm. an- that was the answer that just came to me. Yeah. Um, how was it to, at that, you know, fairly tender age of, of 18, to, to have something that has been your worldview and has formed and determined everything that you're going to do and do do in your life, um, what was it like losing that for you? It's an overstatement to say that it determined my worldview. Okay. And I think I, I would go even further and say most people who claim that religion determines their worldview, mm-hmm. I would question that. Okay. Nevertheless, it was pretty unsettling because right. I, at that time I viewed religion as the foundation for morality. Okay, so before you answer that too far, uh, describe to me what you would see as a worldview and why you would say that most people that hold a religious view aren't actually holding a worldview. Yeah. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess it, it really does all depend on what you mean by worldview. Um, it, but I think it's safe to say that we all share the assumption, or almost everybody shares the assumption, that what we perceive through our senses mm-hmm. is mostly real. Yeah, the the mass majority of people think of the hallucination that we're experiencing, as, as you might call it, uh, to be reality. Yeah, yeah, which is weird when you say it and process it yeah. like that, like I just did. That's just like, it's not a hallucination, it's real. Yeah, that, because if, I, if you persuade an atheist to become a believer, that assumption remains. And if you persuade a believer to become an atheist, that assumption that, that this is real, mm-hmm. that remains. And, and I think right. that, that that provides a foundation for a worldview. So the, the foundational, what you would call worldview, would almost be more so the I think, therefore I am kind of worldview is that we are and we have thoughts and what we call consciousness, that's like your your farthest back retreat to this is worldview. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea, I think, that therefore I am, um, just the fact that I'm experiencing some sense of consciousness mm-hmm. indicates that something is there. Right. There's, there's not nothing, because right. even if everything is an illusion, that illusion is something. Right. Yeah, it's like the only thing we can really prove, like everyone in existence could be fake, but I know this process of me thinking and questioning that I perceive as uh, reality is the farthest fallback position of this is what I can prove, you know, mm-hmm. is just that I'm existing, I'm thinking, therefore I am. 
right? So that that to me is the bedrock thing that I can prove, right? That my my kids could be a figment of my hallucination, my wife, my parents, everything. It could all this could all be one crazy uh, made up scenario around an experiment around an isolated consciousness being me. It could be that, which yeah. sounds like an incredibly narcissistic, self-centered thing to say, but that's true that it, it could be that. Could be. Could be. Um, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, that's all I can do is prove that I exist by self-referential. Am I saying that right? Self-referential. Self-referential? Yeah, kind of uh, thought putting something out and receiving something back, I can't really attest to the validity of what's coming back as far as is Aviv conscious and real? I don't know. I, you're interacting with my reality that I experience. Boy, this all got really existential and deep <laughs> real quick, didn't it? So anyways, um, so worldview for you, uh, explain it for me again. <laughs> I assume that what I experience is mostly real. That, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. And religion to you would be kind of this next level on top of that. So it, it seems to me that you would take your idea of worldview to be far more basic and foundational to consciousness than kind of a way of processing uh, reality, what we call reality. I yeah. was not able to follow that sentence um, or question. Like worldview, I, I think I kind of get what you're saying, that um, people, when I say worldview, I think of everything that informs my existence and the way I perceive and think about things, all the things that influence me making sense of things. And it seems like you've, your take on worldview is that you make it far more basic. The mm. assumption that what we experience is reality. Yeah. And, and of course it also depends on what you mean by worldview. There's other ways of interpreting that phrase. You know, right. what, what assumptions does somebody make in order to figure out how to live their life or get through the day? That's, that's another right. definition of worldview. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, to me, that's more so a, a projection or part of, I need this in graphic format. Like, <laughs> worldviews here, it encompasses that. But, okay, so your, your worldview stayed intact when you were 18, but your religion at that point yeah. was lost. Uh, both your religion and your belief structure to a degree. To a degree, yeah. Right. And I, I wouldn't have been able to articulate that when it happened. So you recognize that, that experience when you're 18 as, um, n yeah, not being able to articulate it, but uh, a, an underlying loss of uh, a certainty of there being something beyond us, maybe? Would, would you have described yourself as being certain of something before I that? I don't know. If you would ask me when I was 17 if I was certain that God existed, I'm not sure what I would have answered. Yeah. 
Now, was this something that you were public with, with your family and everything else? No. Was that, oh, okay. No. How long did that take? Um, well, around the time that I was 18, I also moved away from home. Mm-hmm. And I moved to Israel. Mm. And I wound up living in a community with more atheists than I had met in my entire life previously. <laughs> Interesting. Um, which made it very easy to say that I was also an atheist. Right. Uh, had I moved to a religious community, it probably would have been a bit more difficult to say. Right, right. Um, how, how, did you, how did you experience that new existence without that you know, centeredness, if, if you want to call it that, of belief uh, that there's a giver of everything, you know? Externally, very little change. You just still got to wake up in the morning, brush your teeth, and go to work. Right. But some people don't. Like, I've, I've seen people's lives drastically change that have lost their religion. That's interesting, yeah. You know, but for me, it's been very much, as, as you're saying, it's been a, why would I change anything that I do morally or anything else, really? I mean... Uh, everything well, I was doing made sense outside of there being a God or not, mostly. Well, that, that's the interesting part, questions about morality. Um, right. Because I did view religion as the source of morality. And with that sure. gone, that, that question arose. Why, why shouldn't a, I steal? Why, why shouldn't I take advantage of people right. for my own self-benefit? And I didn't, at the time, I didn't know anything about philosophy. I didn't know anything about uh, logic or reason or psychology or or how to uh, think about evidence. And it took a long time for me to come up with an answer. And mm. it, it's even, it, it was just a half-baked answer at the time. And I just settled on the fact that I never wanted to hurt anybody. Right. I didn't want to steal anything. I didn't want to take advantage of other people. And I couldn't have told you that um, I've decided that it is in my rational interest to do so. Uh, and there were moments where stealing, where I thought I might have gotten away with it, was tempting. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I just didn't want to do that, even if I didn't have a moral philosophy to ground that in. And that was good enough for me at the time. Right. I just, uh, I'm living, I'm behaving the way I feel appropriate. I believe it's a moral way. I, I just didn't feel like. Now, do you think if you were not raised religious that you would have come to the same conclusions? I mean, I guess I'm getting at, do you think it was intrinsic within you as a human that you had these morals just by nature rather than nurture? Well, here's where my background in psychology becomes helpful. And I think it's impossible to say how much each one plays a part and each one does play a part. And I think if I were to attempt to uh, offer my analysis of my own psyche, you shouldn't take that at face value because people aren't particularly good at explaining why they do what they do. So <laughs> I, I think it's best, yeah. That they... I, I think that it's best just to acknowledge the fact that people behave the way they do because of a combination of factors um, and that an individual doesn't always understand their own behavior. Right. Um, I heard a thing on, 
think it's Hidden Brain. Do you ever listen to that? Uh, it rings a bell. Show. I don't know if I've heard of it. Uh, and they were saying that I think they guesstimated somewhere between parenting uh, had somewhere around 20 to 30 percent effect on the overall outcome of a person. And they get a lot of this from identical twin studies mm. that were separated at birth and the similarities that they had. Um, but still, even within identical twins, there are personality differences, which is interesting. How's that happen if they have the exact same genetic code? Um, well, by virtue of the fact that environment does have yeah. an effect. And yeah. I mean, the studies that, the, the twin studies that attempt to distinguish how much a behavior is genetic versus how much is um, environmental mm -hmm. is they'll compare two different groups of twins, uh, identical twins which are raised oh. in the same family right. and identical twins which have been adopted. So identical twins which are raised in the same family are presumed to have the same environment. Mm. Right. But identical twins which have been adopted, they have... 100% the same adopted genetic, to separate adopted families. to different families have 100% identical genetic makeup, but different environments. Right, right. So if we say, for example, um, that uh, identical twins raised in the same family have, and I'm making up these numbers, have 95% of an identical moral outlook mm -hmm. and if by comparison adopted identical twins have let's say 85 percent of right. um identical moral outlook then that 10 percent is probably explained by environment right um right that's interesting those numbers are made up. <laughs> I don't know if such a study has been right, but it's a it's an interesting way of, of looking at it and separating it out, seeing how you can start to make a determination on how you know. Every time I mess up as a parent, I'm like, well, it's really only about two hundred thirty percent. So, <laughs> you know, they'll recover hopefully. Um, so, do you when so to go through your story a bit when when you lost uh, faith and you went to Israel, somewhere where it seems like you'd go to get more faith, just yeah. from an outsider's perspective, you landed in a kibbutz. I'm That's assuming right. uh, with uh, a lot of other atheists. Interestingly, um, do you find that there's a lot of atheists within the Jewish community that that is moderate, or is that I don't know? Is that is that a thing or? Uh, living in the U.S., I haven't really been part of a Jewish community, not yeah. since I was uh, much younger. Okay. Where so did you grow up? I grew up in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Oh, friend of mine, friend of mine who is Jewish from Manchester, New Hampshire, has a friend in Philadelphia that's Jewish that runs a really nice um, uh, Israeli restaurant there, uh, which just recently got, like, best restaurant in the U.S., like, I forget the name of it, but side note. Um, so how did, uh, how did you cope with this loss of faith over, over your 20s and, and going through Israel and, 
and a kibbutz and I don't think there was any coping to do. I just woke up in the morning, brushed my teeth. No and emotional went to work. dread, fallout, existential angst, no nihilism. Um, for a short period in between losing uh, religion, uh, it, let me back up. In between believing that religion was a foundation for my morality, and in between realizing that, look, I don't feel like hurting anybody anyway, so I'm just going to be a moral person just because right. I feel like it. I don't know, six months, maybe less. And it's not like it was, it's not like I was um, wandering around in a funk. Right. For those six months, for most of the time, I was getting up in the morning and right. going to work and going about my day. So mm. the, there really wasn't very much to cope with. So um, did you come, how did you decide to come to psychology and learn more about philosophy and everything else? Did you, did you gravitate towards that as a result of losing that foundation? Or? No, different different um uh what's the word i'm looking for different paths led to each decision you mm -hmm. know I, I decided to study psychology for one set of reasons and then completely independently um i discovered uh religious debates on youtube mm. and that's what uh <laughs> online debates are the best or, or maybe I, maybe i shouldn't say completely independently because yeah. I was um I was a relatively quiet atheist yeah for most most of uh between 18 and maybe um before I went to study uh philosophy when I was 40 41 and not mm. philosophy psychology yeah uh, I mean I was a quiet atheist live and let live respect yeah. other people's views um and I went to study psychology for one set of reasons, and then I came across um, the YouTube debates uh, with uh, the debaters such as, uh, well, Christopher Hitchens, um, Sam Harris, mm -hmm. um, Michael Shermer, and others. And it was just interesting. Yeah. It, so what was, what was the... Uh, what was the motivation to initially study psychology for you? Just an interest. Um, what I, little I of used it I to took read, in college yeah. was very interesting. So I used to read self-help books. Yep. And in one of the self-help books, uh, the author referred to some other book called, this should immediately come to memory. I shouldn't have to think about it. Um, Learned Optimism. Mm, okay. And I said, well, that's an intriguing title. So I went out and bought Learned Optimism, and that was a book about psychology. It wasn't a self-help book so much. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I discovered reading that book that I was more inspired by hard data right. than I was by affirmations or positive thinking. You're, you're in the minority there, aren't you? I think I am. Yeah. <laughs> I think it, I am. It's, it is so disturbing that the, the least um, effective way to... Uh, motivate people or change their minds is through data. That's the least, the, the, uh, the best way to motivate people to change uh, is through a combination of story and data. Mm. I think data is down here. 
for those who aren't watching, it's way down <laughs> low. And then stories like middle, upper middle, and then story combined with factual data is like, okay, yeah. as humans, we get it that. So yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I have very, very deep emotions that I think I might be so emotional that I, my psyche realized that and was like, whoa, pack those down and pretend you don't have them. <laughs> Yeah. And then the, you know, the operating system of me is like, well, let's work off of data points because that's a safer way. So I, I gravitate as well towards mm -hmm. that yet have a lot of empathy and compassion that can be overwhelming at times. My wife would probably disagree with me, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. So I learned optimism was the first book I read that it was about positive psychology mm -hmm. and that's what I decided to study. And I eventually did go to do a master's degree in positive psychology. So now uh, you mentioned you were a quiet atheist. Uh, do Did you, so you're not a militant atheist to the degree at which you feel like you need to strip that away from people or have, has that changed in your world? It's worldview? changed. I, I wouldn't describe myself as militant and mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't want to strip it away from anybody that sounds coercive mm -hmm. there are some people who i might want to persuade okay give me a scenario uh if somebody wants to sit down and have a conversation about epistemology i'll have that conversation and i'll yep. be delighted to do so and where religion has a negative effect yeah i would want to strip it away mm -hmm. although i also recognize that facts and philosophy is a bad tactic mm. to strip away the negative effects of religion. Right. Um, but, and there's plenty of cases where I wouldn't want to strip it away. I work in mental health. And for some people, religion is all they've got. Right, right. And I wouldn't want to take that away from somebody if, if it's having a positive effect right. on their life. And so you, you do believe that uh, your, your take on it would be that religion is kind of like kindergarten to a degree for some people that are just in that stage of human evolution that still kind of need that to, that to get so dismissive. it's so it's <laughs> such a mean thing to say or a bad way of putting it i get it but i i kind of agree with you but at the same time there's a huge part of me that hopes there's a God and feels there's maybe a God. And then there's my data points going like, uh, nope, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I agree with you that I do see that there are people who genuinely need this, that, uh, were it to be taken away, that things could go really bad for them. Um, and, having lost it myself in the last, you know, three to four years at this age is very, very disconcerting, uh, and uncomfortable. Um, but I, I've had enough of a good upbringing, enough healthy relationships and enough consistency in my life and support and everything else that it's not, it's not ruining my life. Uh, it's, it's creating stresses and it's difficult uh, at times for sure, but it's not, it's not, uh, destroying my life. And I know that there are people who are hanging on by a thread that religion generally or genuinely does give them a great, um, 
you know, it gives them good boundaries and, and good processes of living their life that shouldn't be taken away. But at some point in evolution of people, the, the idea of why do we do these? Well, we do them because of this outside force that told us to, or that we are inclined to do because it gave us everything. At some point that does get questioned very deeply and it just naturally goes away, it seems. Um, you think we're evolving away from religion? Yeah, I do. Um, I don't like saying that, and I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> well, I, I hope I'm wrong in that... Um, I'm hope, I hope I'm wrong. I hope our religion will evolve to being one far more centered on the better aspects of religion, like love and, and caring for others and do away with the whole, like, you know, throwing gay people off of roofs and wherever they still do that, or, you know, stoning adulterers and stuff like that. Um, I, I think we are probably evolving away from religion. If you look at any first world country that has their, um, social structure, uh, mostly in place where, you know, your college isn't a huge debt burden on you and you have socialized healthcare. Uh, those nations, uh, you know, religion is just passing away, if you will. They, they might have some spirituality growing in them. I'm, I'm not sure of that, but all church attendance and all that numbers go when they reach that. Mm -hmm. In the U.S., we still have a lot of church attendance and religiosity and the theory behind that from what I've heard is that we have a very high debt load when it comes to higher education, which creates a lot of insecurity in people, which naturally ingratiates them towards clinging to an outside hope to free them from this stress of very high debt loads uh, on uncertain future because of that and um, not having socialized health care, not having that as a surety, you create more of a tension in that population, and so they just naturally believe more as a, as a means of hope. So it's more similar to a lot of the third world countries where belief is far more rampant. <laughs> That's a pretty bad term. Boy, I'm not coming off well here. <laughs> but, <clears throat> I mean, speaking honestly, you know, yeah, I, I'm, I am worried that uh, religion and belief and everything else was just a coping mechanism for the cruelties of life. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a worry. Um, from your experience and what you've learned through psychology, uh, what, uh, what do you see as our psychology contributing to belief from ways that are not founded? Now, I haven't made a study of this. I haven't read any um, academic articles on the subject. I have heard a few interesting lectures on the subject. Mm -hmm. And I think the best answer to your question, I've, I heard from Michael Shermer, the editor of uh, Skeptic, Skeptic Magazine. Yeah. yeah. So his explanation runs something along the following lines. So imagine you and I are cavemen. Yep. And there's a, uh, a rustle in the bushes over there. Yep. Now, 
you're inclined to say, that's a lion. There's something there. And right. I'm inclined to say, yeah, it's just a, just the bushes. Take it now, easy. Don't worry about right. it. Now, let's say it's nothing there. Right. Nothing there. Both of us survive. Right. And can procreate. Right. Let's say it's really a lion. You run away. Yep. I stay behind. I get eaten. You your, procreate. Your genes do not go on. And so if you have a, if that proclivity to think there's something there was genetic, mm-hmm. then the proclivity to think that there's something there gets passed on to the next, next generation. Right. That more, uh, that more fear-based, paranoid uh, set of genes is going to be more likely to move forward. Right. You know, these, these lefty pinkos who are like, well, we need to feed the lion. Let us take food to the lion. You know, they're like, they're done, you know, you know, a crass example. But yeah, it, so aren't we counteracting that at this point then? If the, if that's what got us here, has it just served its purpose and it's going to go away? Or does that same mindset still continue or is is atheism a further or an atheistic approach a further uh, manifestation of that where they see danger in religion see what i'm saying i think i get the gist of it so that that the assumption that something is there as uh something that contributes to survival well that's one thing Mm -hmm. that contributes to survival that's religion does far more than that a religion uh, provides some very basic psychological needs that are not going to go away in the foreseeable future right. i think we have a need for meaning what we are have the a basic need for, needs you think uh religion provides social cohesion yep um i think we have a psychological need for explanations i think nobody's comfortable saying i don't know I've um, found myself to be very uncomfortable saying I don't know. Yeah. It's I don't sleep as well. <laughs> and and moral guidance. Yeah. I in, interestingly I found that every single thing now that happens in my life I have to put more brain power to to figure out whereas before I kind of had a cheat sheet, right? Like mm-hmm. this has already been thought about and figured out. I don't have to think about this. Mm. I can just phone that in and move on where now that i'm saying i don't know about everything i far more have to engage my mind on a lot more things and use that energy to rethink everything which in some ways is maybe a good thing but in a lot of ways is probably um reducing my effectiveness in other areas of my life i don't know yeah i don't know (laughs) yeah yeah um so Talk me through some cognitive biases that uh, that we should all be wary of, because those are the biases when you get into them are just disturbing. Cognitive biases that we should all be aware of. What an interesting question. I mean, when when you when you start yeah. to learn them and then apply them to, oh, I see this in action in myself. Those are those are kind of discouraging moments. Now, are we talking about just everybody to get through life, or are we talking about 
biases that we need to be aware of in order to have a conversation about epistemology. Uh, explain to me epistemology exactly again. Um, how do we know what we know? Right. Okay. I have like, I know words and I know explanations of those words, but I, lo I lose right. the connection between, <laughs> um, more in an epistemology thing because yeah. it seems like in that deep process, you, your brain has tracks that it wants to go down automatically that we can prove through a series of tests that we do and miss empirical truths mm -hmm. that we should be getting because uh, of these biases. Maybe confirmation bias. Which is? You are more inclined to believe something if it confirms what you already believe. Right. And if something contradicts what you already believe, you're more likely to be skeptical of that. Right. So someone will present information, uh, you know, Aviv knocks on my door with his local, uh, you know, door-to-door -door atheist. <laughs> Why don't atheists go door-to-door -door knocking? <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, if, if someone shows up on my doorstep saying, oh, no, here, there's evidence that, you know, philosophically, you, you shouldn't be believing in a God, you, you know, compared to someone that's from your local church or, you know, compared to like you're a Baptist and, you know, the local temple comes by just which I, I have a lot of respect for the Jewish religion that they don't do that. So let's leave them out of this. Let's say you're a Baptist and the what are they the knock, don't, knocking on door people? Um, not Salvation Army. Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witness. Yes. Your Baptist Jehovah's Witness come by and they're trying to sell you on their particular brand, you can just out of hand dismiss it all because you already kind of know what you believe. And so automatically you're, you're just going to be like, no, no, I already know. And even if according to this doc, you know, cryptic ancient doctrine, they might have a better argument, you're going to be more likely to just dismiss whatever they're saying because you already believe something. Whereas if they tell you something that's in line with what you believe, you'll just welcome it in and not really have as much skeptic skepticism towards it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The that confirmation bias always seems to be the one that is just so naturally embraced. Uh, I think probably because it appeals to comfort levels, mostly, in my opinion. Seems seems to me that the root of all evil is comfort more than uh, more than power but just an observation. So <laughs> um, where, do you, where do you land on, um, on the different major arguments for or against God? What are, what are your kind of Aviv's top five arguments uh, against there being a deity? Hmm. Well, I, I take the position that, let me back that up. I'm going to define atheism as the absence of religion. Oh, it can't be just religion. It has to be belief, doesn't I'll, it? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll enfold that into it. I will, take a, I will define atheism as the absence of any supernatural beliefs. Now, right. it's not necessarily to say there is no God. That's just one form of atheism. Oh, okay. So you're saying this is out, this is kind of, you're defining it like outside of naturalism. 
because well, not not necessarily. I don't okay. want to get too. I haven't studied philosophy. Okay. I just have a casual interest in it, and I'm afraid that if I define myself as a, a naturalist or that I'm going to wind up having committed to something that I don't necessarily believe because hmm. there's a whole set of definitions that I'm that I'm unaware of. But it it's possible that there is some supernatural realm. If that's the case, I'm unaware of its existence. Right. Nobody has come up with any persuasive argument for its existence. Mm-hmm. And so let's say hypothetically that God does exist. Mm-hmm. I still don't have a good reason to believe that he does. And I still don't have any good reason to think that God wants me to behave in any particular way. Mm-hmm. And so I have no religion. Right. So I'm, I'm kind of uh, on board with you in being in the same position as you. I, I would call it would you call it weak atheism as far as, I mean, it's a demeaning term, but it's no, like... I just call it atheism. Say, yeah. <laughs> so um, I, would, I would say I'm roughly in the same position as you, uh, but hold, hold hope that there is something just because I'm very comfortable because I've been that for all my life. I'd like to be able to have the comfort again of thinking that there is something loving out there that welcomes us home when we die and we get to see our loved ones again. Mm-hmm. I'd like that. I'd like it too. Which uh, puts me at a some bias of, you know, a comfort bias, if you will. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I want that to be the case. So I'm going to maybe be more inclined to accept arguments that lead towards that end. Mm-hmm. But there is something about going down this road of approaching things skeptically that um, very much to me feels like a cog railway. Like once you go up, you can't go back, right? Do you know what a cog railway is? I, I, th- I understand the gist, but I'm not, not really following skepticism. Skepticism it's Just a skeptical to... approach when you start to embrace it, uh, you start to realize that... Um, when you when you when you feel the mental humiliation uh, internalized of or the loss maybe is a better it's it's humiliation to myself it's loss of something it's um, seeing the errors that I was previously holding when I absorb all of those and use a skeptical approach to be able to see them uh, it it becomes something that's very, very hard to undo, right? And it, so once you go past that, it's, it's very hard to, like, I would have a very hard time right now accepting any form of knowing that comes through any curated emotional experience, like, that's what I kind of call church now or temple. That's or a great whatever. phrase. It's a curated, curated emotional. emotional experience. And emotions are a, a way of knowing something that I think uh, should be allocated some weight. But I'm very apprehensive to giving them any weight at all now because it's kind of like creating a, uh, a landslide. You know, that if I open that door, 
Is it going to, you know, have me cast off my ability to think skeptically about things? And, you know, thinking skeptically gets a pretty bad rap sometimes, but in religious circles, of course. (laughs) But it, you know, the, the interesting thing is that any religion is going to ask you to think skeptically about all other religions except theirs, you know, which is, that's a bit of a tell, which is kind of weird that, uh, is uncomfortable. (laughs) So yeah, that's kind of what I mean by that is that once you go past those things and unpack them and see them in that light and see kind of the cognitive biases or whatever else, that you were embracing and the emotional curated experiences that by interacting as a group in supporting and, and loving each other, it creates an emotional experience. And when you're in an emotional state, you're far more likely to believe whatever is being fed to you or told to you. Right. And Every week, people go back to an curated emotional experience to ramp themselves up again for the Mm -hmm. upcoming week to retain that belief. And, you know, when I was a Christian, all all the time you'd hear the, you know, the coal, if taken out of the fire, will eventually go cold. And I get that. I'm experiencing it and in more ways than one. But at the same time, what if burning is not what you want. You know, it's just because your holding belief obviously doesn't make it true. Just because a lot of people believe something doesn't make it true. Uh, and to subject yourself to a weekly repetition of ramping up on those beliefs in an insular environment where you're not critically approaching what the group believes to me just seems like a very dangerous thing, you know? Yeah. And and let's, let's look at both sides of that coin. So the curated emotional experience is a bad way of knowing what is true and what is not true. Unless emotions are reliable, but they can be so easily manipulated. What is objectively true. Sure. And not true. Well, on the other hand, the other side of the coin is, I need to shut up more. So I'm going (laughs) to, is that strikes me as the kind of primal experience that everybody, almost everybody, either wants or should have. True. And which um, a secular lifestyle doesn't offer much in the way of. Um, Yeah, like... and, And people are desperately looking for communities. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, that church is something that provides that, that provides that community. Um, and I'm 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 very very uh, itchy when it comes to attending things like that. Mm-hmm. Like any group, anything to me is just like, no, no, you know, meeting some stranger off of Craigslist to talk about is there a God? I'm yeah, this will be <laughs> fun, you know. But to go to a group thing where I'm expected to have the same beliefs and have the same emotional experience as everyone else in this room without raising my hand and going like, whoa, whoa, wait, but and I think that maybe, and did you think about 
that to me is just it it there's just alarms going off in my head mm-hmm. saying this is not right you know um well it it depends on what's being said and that's the kind of thing that can be used for good or for bad or for just plain silliness right right you know you can go to a rave or or a grateful dead concert right and people are united and wearing tie-dye t-shirts yeah everyone's got the outfit everybody's and... everybody's dancing Everybody thinks Jerry Garcia is the greatest guitarist that has ever been. Yep. <laughs> and it can be a lot of fun, and it does nobody any harm. Yeah. Um, you can unite behind political activism, social activism. And again, that can go both ways, because you can always join a movement which is... Violent or other. Yeah. yeah. So what do you... As having a... Uh, background in psychology uh what do you recommend for someone who's going through uh faith deconstruction uh and you know losing that aspect of their life or at least re taking it apart and rebuilding it my first question would be what do you want peace I, i mean i wouldn't your your question suggests that I'm going to come up with some kind of psychotherapeutic answer yeah. for a large group of people. Good and point, I, yeah. And I think that kind of therapeutic answer, you can only... Um, you can yeah, only add treat, a lot yeah, of right. paid treatment. <laughs> well, you, it's very... You have to take an individual approach. Right. And um, I don't so know the if there's suggestion number data. one would be uh, if you're messing with something that's this integral Mm -hmm. to your life that you should probably interact with a therapist of some sort, counselor. You mean if you're having questions about... Well, just if you're going through that big of a transition Mm -hmm. uh, in your life, that it's probably healthy to speak to someone on a fairly consistent basis who's a a mental health professional or a counseling professional. Even if not a mental health professional, if you're undergoing any kind of major life transition, you always want to get advice from somebody who knows a little bit more than right. than you do. Yeah, and and also losing that community at the same time. You're all your what underpinned your thinking and everything else is uprooted and then also to a large degree you're losing uh the the interaction the community that supported you as well. Not that they necessarily will not support you, but you're not going to go to the curated emotional experience every mm-hmm. week and interact with them like you did before. Some people will opt out. I, I personally know people who do not believe in God and continue to attend religious services and send, and send their children um, mm. to have a religious education because um, they believe it's an important component the, to have that community or to have ritual. Now, the people who I know who do this don't send their children to be off to schools which teach religious fanaticism. Right. They're they they all tend moderate. to be very humanistic yeah. forms of religion. Right. Um, so where do you find yourself uh, finding community and how do you define purpose and meaning? Self-improvement. Getting better at my job. 
I've been working mental health for about three years now, mm-hmm. and I'm better at it now than I was in my first year. And that is such a, might I say, a, a very, uh, there's, there's a large degree of need there. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that gives meaning to me, the fact that um, I can have a conversation with somebody today and that person will uh, either it will end on a positive note, whereas two years ago when I first started, I wouldn't have known how to have it end on a positive note. Or today, I'm better aware of how to help people than I was when I first started. Mm. That to me is meaningful, the fact that I'm better at my job. Right. Um, just learning more, I, f- I find it meaningful to me to, to open up a nonfiction book and, uh, and learn something about the world. Where, what do you feel when you look out at the stars? Like, because I think I got to think that's where, if there is no God, that's where we started coming up with it. You know, we're just looking out there like, good grief, what's going on? <laughs> on the best of days, I can just, I just admire the beauty of it. On most days, I take it for granted because I'm going about my business, right. as I think most people do. <laughs> but it, on, on other days, I might, you know, I can only think so much about cosmology because I don't understand it. I've heard about the Big Bang Theory. Can I really say that I understand it? I probably don't. Right. Uh, so I only spend so much time wondering where it all came from. Now, if somebody ever comes up with a really good answer about where it all came from, that would be great. Right. Um, the best cosmologists have only limited information. And I'm sure it's very fascinating once you are able to understand it. But uh, I recognize my own limitations in understanding all that. But I'm just as capable as anybody else at looking up in the sky and thinking, wow, that's really beautiful. Yeah. And then to know what we know now about it and how just infinitely bigger and more complex it is mm-hmm. then it's crazy um th- have you watched the youtube video of uh hitchens dennett harris and uh dawkins the dawkins. four horsemen yeah. yes i saw that video it was a while ago but i saw it so um somewhere in there harris asked the four of them what what is the argument that gives you the most pause of wow maybe there is some intelligence outside of this you know pulling the strings or whatever mm-hmm. uh and it was interesting the, the answers but i'd be interested to hear what you think about that like what what argument for god is the most gives you the most pause to be like hmm there aren't any <laughs> none of them <laughs> i haven't or <clears throat> i haven't heard any yeah it was, harris i think said the not ontological the anthropic principle i and i'm probably going to butcher this as i'm i'm a pretty picture taker i don't mm-hmm. <laughs> i don't get paid for this other kind of stuff but um a, a a botching of what the anthropic principle is is in many ways the observation of like all these things that are on just a razor thin you know and razor is generous just a razor thin margin of like the strength of gravity 
speed of light. There's these cosmological constants. I think 14 different cosmological constants were one of them to be off by like a millionth of a degree. Uh, our whole universe would just be kind of dust drifting, mm-hmm. not be anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the infinitesimally small uh, percentage that we could be this rather than eternally nothing you know to harris was the most kind of uh like geez what's going on you know but um i thought that was i thought that was very at least open-minded for him to uh ask that question Mm -hmm. and and to be giving something to allow from his position to allow something to give him pause you know uh he seems to be open-mindedly searching for it while uh, asserting himself, as you have stated, like, I'm here, I do not hold a belief, but if there's any evidence, I'm willing to see it while main, you know, if any evidence can get by a genuinely skeptical approach, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear it. Sure. You know, which seems like seems like a good approach to me. Um, I wonder if a skeptical approach can argue away anything, though. And... Yeah, I wonder what do you ever consider what the danger in a skeptical approach might be? Well, there's limitations to when one should apply a skeptical approach. Mm, okay. Talk 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 to well, me about that. You don't want a skeptical approach if you're on a first date. Mhm. <laughs> I disagree. You're not going to get a second date. You want to be skeptical say, to the character of this person and Really? How well, do I mean how do I know that you really do that for a Discer- living? Okay, you know, what's how the do difference I- <laughs> between discerning and skeptical, I guess? Yeah, and, and of course, you know, the word skeptical is, <laughs> probably has multiple meanings circulating in our, in our society. I work at Bank of America. I doubt yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> I love puppies. Yeah, can you yeah. prove that? Can you pr- no, no. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I'm sure we could find limitations to a skeptical approach. There's a healthy amount of skepticism, and then there's crippling skepticism that won't allow you to get through the day. Right. Yeah. I, I often worry that I'm, I'm, I'm overindulging in skepticism and that I, I don't allow for the uh, complete experience of my life to inform what I believe to be beyond whatever this is. Mm-hmm. I worry that that's possibility now i think um i'm out of my depth because i haven't studied philosophy but i think the the original meaning of the word was that you wouldn't accept something on authority that you should rely on evidence in order to know what is true and what is not true and that that was the original meaning so and with that we'll be right right back pause (laughs) So, no, it's a good moment to pause and, and to come back to skepticism rather than getting caught up right, in the becoming, labels right. because somebody out there is going to tell me that I've just offered the completely wrong definition of skepticism. Well, let's, let's just talk about the idea, which is that uh, rather than relying on authority, what somebody tells you, mm-hmm. you shouldn't rely on the evidence. And that love that that's a great idea, but even that idea has its limitations. Which are well, the first date example that that I just gave, where if you have a guest in your house right. and you want to know whether that guest would like a cup of tea, you have to have trust. Sci- scientific method is the wrong way 
to figure out whether your guests wants a cup of tea and you should just ask <laughs> right <laughs> and, and not be skeptical oh, okay. when the guest says i'll have one sugar please oh that's interesting <laughs> so you could result to like well i know you say you're thirsty but we're going to have to take yeah. a blood sample <laughs> and determine your level of dehydrated so at some point relationship and trust become the uh more of the currency of trading of of information rather than your you know scientific right. skeptical inqu inquiry yeah and that's when people start to make the argument that you know religion and spirituality is a um one way of knowing compared to a scientific inquiry of knowing and and i can start to get on board with that but at some point i still have to say what is true um and or i have to think what is true and i don't I can't, I don't know if I can offer the explanation. I feel that there is a God because I feel emotional when I do this, that, or the other. So there is a God. I don't know if I can stand behind that or feel good about that's my only ability to uh, prove. Right. right. It's not like saying, I know that I'm thirsty because I feel thirsty. Right. I know so. there's a God because I feel there's a God. It's a massively different claim. Now, right. your your feelings could be deceiving you. you. You know, someone could have just smoked a lot of pot, and now their mouth is dry when they're not actually dehydrated. Right. Right? So they feel thirsty, but they're not really. So that it's, there's then all these levels of, like, kind of skepticism where you're like, well, you might be this, but you're actually that. And at, at some point, you have to trust the user interface trust and interactions uh to move forward and let the data points go ah that's hard i don't know how to do that it, sure you do okay how sure every time you've asked a guest whether they want a cup of tea i don't know i've never asked someone if they want a <laughs> cup of tea i ask them if or, they want uh, water there you go <laughs> and then i don't offer them the one soda that i have <laughs> what a bad host um, so I have this little analogy where I'm definitely leaning towards materialist is, you know, a safer way to go for interacting with others to a large degree. Um, but if you're to embrace a materialist approach too deeply, it's kind of like standing an inch from a jumbotron, you know, what a jumbotron mm -hmm. is, you know, like a, at a football game, it'll be the huge screen where they do a replay okay. on it or something. Jumbotron is Sony branded name. Um, so there, you know, there's Jumbotron. It's made up of just little red, green, and blue dots that, you know, that are programmed to either blink one of these colors and then the overall picture is made and everyone in the stadium sees it. Being a materialist to me seems like you could just be standing this close, you know, an inch from the Jumbotron. What are you going to see? You're going to see the material truth that there's a red, green, a red dot, a green dot, and a blue dot. And right now, just the blue dots are, you know, or the green dots on. You're going to see the data, right? But you're not going to see, like, you know, someone's asking someone to marry them, right? 
all those data points create a bigger picture that we subjectively partake in and know through that those means and to me that's you know that's a way of getting back towards embracing the subjective experience as telling us what is beyond and the meaning of this life because the data points are extremely devoid of meaning they only mean exactly that point that they sit upon you know and so that's a it's a thing that pushes back against my skepticism if you will really i, I was about to arrive at the opposite conclusion because how the, so well what's the best way that we have of taking multiple data points mm -hmm. and analyzing them and figuring out what they mean a approach of inquiry of analyzing and i would say scientific method yeah it's the best way we have of doing that figuring out what do these multiple data points mean so is our whole subjective experience of being human kind of like a short shortcut of this the scientific process you know that i'm not sure what that means so i, I can't sign on to that so uh let's say you could go scientific process to figure out you know is that a cat that just walked across the street you know and you could take the time to track down the cat and get the you know the the information from the camera that was recording in front of the street whether you know and go through all that data and then all the data about well do cameras really record and our light beams really are photons mm -hmm. and you know you could go to the nth degree and scientifically prove that yes that was a cat that went across or you could just observe it and know like yeah that's a cat and it just crossed the street you know we have kind of a a way of is is the scientific process to some degree a way of um uh, you know looking below the hood on our experience of being human. I think it is. Yeah, it kind of does. And it seems like we take it and we apply it to ways that are either going to benefit and extend the experience of being human, but also we have ways of, or moments, parts of our lives that are questionable that we then apply it to, to then say, eh, I don't know if we're doing the right thing here, or if, you know, we should be doing something different or... Nope, spot on. Good job. I don't know. It's it's odd. But I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I mean, science can um confirm the obvious. Um Yeah, that or, didn't or they what just seems do the that obvious. with the large hadron collider? Didn't they just kind of like they already kind of knew it was going to be there, but then they got the evidence and it was kind of Kind of a letdown to a degree that they're like, well, we were right. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, you want that confirmation if you have a yeah a, a theory which is not fully formed, or if you have a hypothesis which has some confirmation, but incomplete on incomplete confirmation. You want to keep on testing it. So the fact, and again, I don't I have no idea what's going on at the Hadron Collider. So they ran some tests and it confirmed something that they already believed. Okay, so that's great. So which was huge is the first time sure. they had evidence of that. But, but imagine if it didn't. 
Imagine if it didn't. Well, that now things get really interesting. I now know. A, That's a why it's new... kind of a letdown. You know, it's kind of like, oh, we were right. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. A letdown. I mean, to a degree, a yeah. little. Like it would have been exciting if, it, like, something happened and it was different than everything they thought would happen. It would kind of be a moment of like, oh wow. Yeah. Now we got to look into this. <laughs> you know. I started developing an undergraduate thesis for psychology about how um, positive social support interacts with um, with physical exercise to increase well-being. Positive um, social support yeah. interacts with exercise. Yeah, to increase well-being. And I, and I don't want to go into the details of, of, of uh, what I found. In, but when I did explain it to a friend, he just said, that seems kind of obvious. <laughs> and he was right. Right. Um, maybe he shouldn't have been so dismissive, but he, <laughs> I, I confirmed the obvious. And I said, yeah, fair enough. But now we know that it's true. What seems obvious, now we know that it's true. Right. We tested it. Um, and on the other hand, it could have come out the other way. So we have to test these things because when things disconfirm the obvious, that that really gets interesting. That really does increase our knowledge base. Right. It's those moments where you it's a foregone conclusion, but then you you see something else and you're like, whoa. Right. What what tricks are you know what tricks are our social structure, our processes, our traditions, our own minds playing on us that's jumping over these you know things that they shouldn't be jumping over to get to the other to get to the end. Mm -hmm. You know. Those are the moments to me that are pretty interesting that that are very interesting to me to look into further. The things, one of the early questions I had when I started on this whole journey was like, why don't people pray for amputations to be regrown? It seems like a sarcastic, you know, and just absurd thing to say. Right. But the... The practice of asking a supernatural being to intervene at a cellular level on humans is rampant. Everyone on Sunday, Saturday, Friday, Tuesday, whatever. And in today, if something happens to my kids, I'll pray because I'm going to cover my beds. But why wouldn't I pray for an amputation to be regrown, but I'll pray for... Uh, you know, at a cellular level to have cancer to be done away with, right? To me, what that says is either I've got some weird limitations on God that don't make sense, or I don't believe that God is capable of regrowing amputations, or I'm just lying to myself and uh, hoping that, hoping for the best, you know, uh, and that there is, I don't really believe there's a God because why wouldn't I pray for an amputation? But I would never in a million years go to a church and find someone who had been so unfortunate to lose a limb and pull them up front of everybody and have them stand up there with their lost limb and say, Hey, let's all, you know, pray that this, you know, regrows. That just seems like it would be so deeply mm -hmm. insensitive.
but you do that for someone who had cancer in those situations, you know, and that's really, um, really, I call it a tell, a faith tell, like Mm. to use poker terms, you know, another one is, uh, my second, my, my next, my retirement plan of uh, rapture pet care. So people like oh, yourself, tell. I can't wait to hear this is kind this. of, a, this is kind of a joke, but <laughs> so people like yourself, your local f- friendly atheist will agree that for a monthly fee of $5, uh, when the rapture happens that you will go and take care of the pets of said people who have been paying you to take care of their pets after the rapture. Now tell me what's wrong with that. Is there anything wrong with that? Because if from the rapturist's point of view uh-huh. that I might be next Tuesday at four o'clock raptured, then little Sparky at home is going to starve to death, right? Not if you've got backup from rapture pet care. Your friendly local atheist will go and let Sparky out and find Sparky a new home, Granted, the world might be burning in flames and planes are crashing down everywhere. Like, that makes sense that you'd have that kind of backup if you genuinely believe in the rapture, right? You'd want that assurity for your pet, or surety. Uh, but no one's doing that. And they, I don't think they would do that. Why? I don't think they truly believe it on that level. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I think there's a lot of self-deception going on. Um, Now, when it, and even like... Now, I have to take issue with that. Okay, okay. I I think that most people are sincere in their religious beliefs. And I think that if somebody... psychology is lying to them. Well, I don't think that they're consciously lying. No, no, now, they're not there, consciously lying. But there may be some psychological explanation for why people will pray mm. to recover from cancer while nobody would pray to grow back a limb. But I don't think it's about um, they don't really believe. What do you I, think I mean, it's I, about? Uh, I think it's about ex- Stakes too high norms or? of experience and expectations. We know that people do occasionally That's recover. That's kind of the same thing. Well, you don't it? you don't have to persuade me I right mean, but but right but okay, let's I but, but I, I I take them if somebody says that they believe that if they pray that maybe so and so can recover from cancer and the same person would never think of praying for a lost limb to grow back right uh, uh, you and I recognize the inconsistency there right. But whoever is likely to do that kind of prayer, I take them at their word that they are being honest about what they think God can do. Now, I can speculate as to some psychological explanation in that we occasionally see um, people recover from cancer, and we don't always know why, but we have never seen a limb grow back on a human so that could just be one of those things that God doesn't do. God doesn't work that way. I mean, there's, well, in there's, their always, there's always a theological explanation for why some things don't happen. You, I, you can always fabricate one. I think you're a kinder, gentler man than I am, <laughs> just at a human level. 
Yeah, I I see what you're saying, but it just seems like you could uh, ask someone to explain that that does pray for cancer but doesn't pay play pray for amputations and be like, "What do you think? Why why aren't we doing this?" You mm-hmm. know, and it, it it seems like they'd have to face that that realization or you oh, know, you'd be if, surprised what people can avoid. <laughs> but no, I, I mean, I agree with you that logically it really doesn't make much sense. But I think where you and I disagree is people's sincerity in what they claim to believe in. And you can always fabricate a religious explanation. So sincerity now, doesn't I, necessarily mean consistency. It means sincerity. I agree. I agree. Now, I happen to think that the theological explanations that one grafts on to reality are bad explanations. But I wouldn't question somebody's sincerity if they tell me that they believe those explanations. Right. Like, God just doesn't grow limbs back. That's so not... what's the responsibility of a person when they say, all right, I, I do believe that uh, God can heal cancer. All right, do you believe that God can heal amputations? They have to answer that within themselves... Yeah. Well, What's you know, their responsibility in that? You know, know I, th- to... I think I think I'm going to bow out from that line <laughs> of argument now because that's a question that you really have to pose to somebody who believes that. Hmm. And I wouldn't really just wouldn't be appropriate for me to speak on their behalf beyond what I've already speculated. Right. I don't I don't want to play. Uh, I don't want to be in the ironic position of playing devil's advocate for God. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I like that. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, I had, I had a really good conversation with a, um, a very genuine, uh, Christian person, uh, on a recent job and I really enjoyed the exchange and so did he, uh, I think he was open-minded. Um, I would like to think I'm open-minded. I'm, I know though that I might be fairly closed-minded because of my past and, um, protecting myself in some ways so i have to excuse me consider that but um and this person was a rapturist i'm not sure the technical term of one that believes in the rapture but i don't think he had actually heard that business plan of rapture pet care (laughs) and i think i think his pet had actually just died like the week before Mm. and it was like too soon but he you know in 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 good a jest or whatever else. I don't, I don't think he was uh, offended. I think he knew that it was just something that bothered me in, in a similar manner as the mm-hmm. cancer, but not amputation situation, which, you know, is still just a difficult um, realization for me to, to not get past. I mean, it's kind of, there's a, I think it's Loretta Lynn has a song. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Yeah, it's like, yeah, okay. I I guess if if we were all really going to heaven, that death just wouldn't be as big of a deal. Um, yeah, faith tells. But, um, what have we not covered that, that you think would be pertinent to talk about? Well, we two things, because you, you asked why I became an atheist, and yep. the reason that I became an atheist, it's a bad reason to become an atheist, revelation. You just didn't feel it. Right. Yeah. Um, or you just didn't now I can feel say that the I, other way. Sure. Now, I, I think revelation is a, a bad way 
to arrive at any decision. It's a biblical description. Um, The reason I persisted in atheism was because I was unaware of any evidence or any argument to persuade me that God does exist. Now, that hadn't... That that question or anything else just hadn't arisen in your experience up to that point? Prior to becoming an atheist, I don't think I ever... It, it was ever posed to me in a serious manner um, whether God exists or not. I had just operated under the assumption my mm-hmm. entire life up to that point that God does exist. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So how did, how did you go from revelation to uh, main, maintenance? How did you maintain your lack of faith? Oh, ju- just by being unaware of any evidence, hmm. any credible evidence. Right. I have to add that caveat. There is evidence for God's existence. The Bible's a form of evidence. Now, it's just a, not credible. Uh, and revelation right. is a form of evidence. But again, that's that's yeah, not I credible. I don't think revelation's credible. Um, now, the, ar- the, the pro-arguments for God that come from a more rational perspective is, or philosophical pr- perspective as far as anything that comes into being has a cause... Um, mm-hmm. therefore we have a cause outside of this universe, existence, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of similar to a turtles all the way down, uh, I've heard people say. But what what do those make you think when you hear arguments like that? That's I, I think that's a fallacy of composition, Okay, which is um, bricks are rectangular, mm-hmm. and... Therefore, if a house is made of bricks, the house will be rectangular. So that's an example of the compositional fallacy that the whole will be similar to the parts. How's that apply so, to if something exists that had to have a cause? Because when we observe that everything that begins to exist has a cause, we're observing parts. We're observing everything in the universe. Every observation that has ever been made has been of something beginning to exist, and it does have a cause, that observation has been made in certain conditions. And those conditions are the pre-existence of time and the pre-existence of matter. So beginning to exist is something which occurs over time. And beginning to exist also is the rearrangement of existing matter into some into matter of another form mm-hmm. when a car begins to exist it's the rearrangement of metal and rubber and gasoline right and that's a process that occurs over time when you and i began to exist we were the arrange, rearrangement of biological cells right. which is a process that occurs over time those are the parts of the universe now the universe itself we're talking about the origins of time and space itself. So the conditions under which we make the observation do not apply to the origins of time and space itself. Now, what's that mean? Well, everything that begins, every observation of something beginning to exist uh-huh. occurs over time. But the origin of time itself right. does not occur over time the the origin of time itself does not occur over time what, right what does that well at mean? the at the outset of time beginning to exist 
uh-huh there is time no was time not beginning there is no time but i mean those, so those that, sound that's like a, so such biblical descriptions like you know outside of space and time and mm-hmm. uh, yeah what and the same thing applies to you know the rearrangement something be, that begins to exist involves the rearrangement of matter mm-hmm. that's a condition right that there's matter but the origins of matter itself right that's a condition which doesn't apply the origin of matter itself does not involve the rearrangement of matter sure and so the conditions under which we observe everything beginning to exist having a cause do not apply to the origins of the universe and therefore we cannot rationally conclude that time and space have a cause so you would so at that point you'd be saying they just always were Oh, I'm happy to say I don't know. Right. I have no idea how time originated and how matter itself originated. And that's the honest thing to say. Now, is is the difference between someone who's a believer and someone who's an atheist just a comfort level of being able to say, well, I don't know? I think that might be one of the differences, yeah. Because it just seems like it's so obviously like, well, we don't know that yet. Yeah, I mean, I, I think might, that that's a rather... But we don't right now. That's, that's a rather unremarkable thing to say. I have no idea how time came into existence. That seems to me to be a perfectly reasonable thing to say. Um, and I, it seems to me that every reasonable human being ought to be able to say, I have no idea how time began to exist, rather than asserting that some supernatural entity brought it about. Right. So I, I'm, I'm fine with saying, like, I have no idea about that. What I do know are these principles of love, empathy, selflessness. These are things that I can experience and can do and can act upon in the immediate now. And they're very important things for us to, uh, you know act out and insist upon and teach to others and you know those are those are real things that i i can be definitive about whereas yeah it's crazy people are killing each other over things that have no way of being proved yet they're not doing the things that are so easily proved like showing love one to another mm-hmm. yeah. the, the so many of the principles in the bible that are so incredibly foundational principles that you know people just are looking past for lack of better evidence on on other people's parts that i mean it, you you've probably heard of the doubting thomas um it's New Testament. It's not Torah, so maybe you didn't, but... I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's one of uh, Jesus' disciples that was a materialist. He's basically, no, not until I see him and can mm-hmm. put my finger in his side, which to me is kind of interesting that that's in there. Like, they put a materialist in the Bible. <laughs> that's interesting, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Do you know the story? With Doubting Thomas? Right, so yeah. once once... Thomas saw the wound. Mm-hmm. What did he conclude? Uh, once he saw Jesus and, and you know, did his thing, 
Uh, he said, my Lord, my, my master, I, I believe, was the, was the quote. And Christ's response was not, hey, you, you, piece, you sack of whatever, why didn't you believe? It was um, a simple translation, is happy are the people who are able to believe without evidence. Hmm. Which is kind of like you were saying, a statement of the obvious, where... Happier people who are able to believe without seeing? Yeah. It, it was basically, um, blessed are those who believe without seeing, or something like that. It, it was not a condemnation right. of him not believing without the material evidence. Mm-hmm. It was more, it seems, a pointing out that other people can be at peace without having to have the material evidence in front of them and they will they will be at more peace they will be more easily satisfied they will be happier and that's not a that condemnation is true it's absolutely <laughs> true it, it it like but it's a bad way of figuring out who is the messiah and who is not the messiah what do you mean either jesus is the messiah or he's not. Or Jesus is not the Messiah. Right. And to believe without seeing is a bad way of figuring out whether that is objectively true. Right. That's the critique that I have that, like, as soon as he was gone and the people that saw him were gone, we have to take it, not we, anyone, on other people's massively flawed experience of reality. But, but even Thomas... Yeah. Okay, so Thomas saw a wound. Uh huh. What conclusions can well, Thomas have rationally arrived at, having seen the wound? Does it? Can he rationally conclude? You know, given his long acquaintance with Jesus, mm-hmm. given all the facts that were available to the time, and in addition to all those facts, he saw a wound, right? And probably knows some facts about a three-day crucifixion. Is that right? So. Can he therefore rationally conclude that Jesus is the Messiah? That's still a leap of faith. Well, what he did see, if he saw it, you know, and if this whole recounting is true, um, what they say happened was that he saw this person killed on a cross, dead, put in a tomb, um, vanish, and then... Uh, come back to life, and he sees it. This is the person, and here is the wound that I saw them put a spear in him, you know, uh, and now he's alive. Uh, at that point, it's kind of like, who cares about a Messiah or any term <laughs> about anything? This dude is conquered death. Yeah. So, I mean, okay, all I'm that, in. All you know? that would be very remarkable. Very remarkable. But... <laughs> For Thomas to conclude that Jesus is therefore Messiah would not be an evidence-based Well, by Messiah, are you kind of invoking like uh, Jewish prophecies applying to specifically Messiah kind of thinking? Yeah, that's fair. I I don't really know the ins and outs of the biblical argument for what this and that has to be for Messiah, and I know there are a lot of people who yeah. will and I'm weigh probably, on that. And I'm probably taking a metaphorical story way too literally. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that the metaphor is about how much skepticism is healthy. Right. Or, and, w- and what is the value yeah. of accepting things on faith? That's probably what the metaphor is about. And even then, I'm, so. I'm, I'm strained to accept the value of that metaphor. <laughs> well, I think it's true, though, that, and, and I think science has proven that, that the people who are more optimistic and trusting genuinely are happier, mm-hmm. while the more skeptical, you know, gen, generally negative people will have a better grasp on reality, but be more unhappy. That might be true, yeah. That's <laughs> a real thing. So... You know, is this just ancient parable that, you know, people for living thousands of years have uh, observed and imbued into a story Mm -hmm. that be true or not? I don't know. Um, Yeah, I to me at this point, I'm holding out. I keep telling all my relatives and everyone else that knows me that, hey, I am open and I've told God that he can come and sit down on the couch with me in the morning. I'm happy to have a conversation with him. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I, I want this. Feel free to pray for it. I'll pray for it. And I want the God of the universe to come down and just talk to me for a second. Let me know what's up. And that's, you know, if, if this being is all-powerful, can do anything, and is outside of time, he can then certainly afford the time to make itself present for just a moment and we'll talk a little bit and I'll go on believing if specifically believing is what is so important here, right? Um, is that an arrogant and evil and horrible thing to say? Why would it be? Uh, if God has all power and all time at its disposal, it just throw a breadcrumb. This is like this is a mm-hmm. breadcrumb while you're sitting at Chipotle, then just flick off the table. <laughs> I mean, here you go, little birdie. <laughs> um, so you know, I'm I'm open to believing, but then other people are going to say, "Well, your your uh, bar for evidence is set too high." How's that too high? I don't understand. Yeah, you like, have to have that conversation with somebody. Yeah, who believes, I, I played devil's advocate once, and there's only <laughs> so far I can go in defending beliefs that I don't yeah. hold. Yeah, I mean, what would it take for you to believe that there there is a God? Well, I it, it depends on how you define God. A supernatural entity outside of us, not even that it okay. cares for us, like yeah. And, and let me say at the outset, there are some definitions of God that compel me to say, I do believe in God. Aliens. Because, because I've heard some people say, God is love. Well, I believe in love. Don't, it's not so, just people that say that. That's what in the, you know, the, the Newer Testament, that, that is, they, they say that. Okay. It's written, God is love. Well, and if, I challenge God people is to love, say, just switch them out and don't say God for a year. Just say love and see what changes in your life. Because at that point, people might be saying, no, love does not approve of gay people. Oh, wait, no, that doesn't seem right. We understand love. Right. And love is not judgmental love, you know? 
we'd get that. But when we say God, we hold all these preconceived ideas of God mm-hmm. that are not the same, but we all experience love as humans and sure. understand what it is. So and if, take that out of your vocabulary and only use God for a year, or only use love, the word love, for a year, if you're a God person, and see if that adjusts your thinking at all. Sure. And if, and if that's somebody's definition of God, then I believe in God. Right. Because I believe in love. <laughs> On the other hand, I mean, some of the arguments that are put forward to say that God, God exists, such as the one that we, uh, we discussed, uh, God is the origin of time and space. Well, a demonstrated ability to create time and space, that would be evidence. Uh, A demonstrated ability, you know, the the other argument uh, or another argument for God is uh, the so-called design of the universe. Well, a demonstrated ability to to design, interesting slip, to uh, design universes. Right. That would be evidence. Um, a demonstrated ability, a, a demonstration of moral accountability after death. That would be evidence. A demonstrated ability for moral accountability after death. What sure. Do you mean I mean, by that's, that? that's one of the definitions of God, or, um, or at least one of the attributes, one of the defining attributes of God is that he is our final judge after we die. Right. So if that kind of judgment exists after we die, and that judgment resides in an individual entity, okay, that... Right, but the people who believe that are going to say you're going to... Your your evidence is going to be a little too late. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, if we could demonstrate that that exists while I'm alive, then that would would be evidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I... I do not hold that those are unreasonable, uh, you know, standards of evidence. I mean, sure. So, so if I am huge asked, huge claims require huge evidence. I'm not a fan of that. I, I'm I not am. a fan of the claim. Remarkable claims require remarkable evidence, and I think that that is usually said in reference to the resurrection. Now, I my my response to that is. Okay, what would be a normal amount of evidence to explain a resurrection? Never mind a remarkable amount of evidence to explain a resurrection. What would be a normal amount of evidence that should convince somebody that a, that a resurrection? Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to hold the bar so high to demand a remarkable amount of evidence. Give me a normal amount of evidence <laughs> that somebody can create time and space that... Well, that see, a resurrection just, occurred. I, see, I still disagree because, I mean, just a normal amount of evidence to, you know, make a resurrection, you know, it, that's still extremely high. I mean, you need to see someone who is dead now alive. Yeah, that might be the case. And why, why, would, why would someone be held accountable for not believing that that didn't happen when it's that crazy? You know, it's like, dude, I got no problem with this principle of love and selflessness and like all these, um, you know, um, not all these principles that Christ taught and everything else and all the principles that the Torah teaches and everything else. I got no problem with these for the most part. Um, But 
requiring belief when there is no evidence to a standard that I naturally hold to believe something, why would I be asked to lower my standards for belief for that thing, which is a much greater um, accusation, not accusation, but claim. Yeah. You know? I think that that's one of the more reprehensible uh, aspects of, uh, of theology. The idea that you're expected to believe in the absence of evidence as a moral value. Or even if I'm wrong about the evidence, and I can't rule that out, it could be that the evidence favors God ex God's existence, and I'm simply wrong. And for that, I'm held accountable. And right. I, I don't view that as morally right. You know, yeah. I, I might be so stupid as to believe that one plus one equals three. We can forgive is that ignorance. A, is that or, a moral failure yeah. on my part? And maybe I'm just stupid in not recognizing that the evidence does favor God existing. But somehow that makes me evil. Mm. Yeah, I, that's, a, that's a good point to be made on the side of the, uh, the atheist that's getting chided by people that believe. To, to like, whoa, guys, I'm, I'm not trying to be mean here, but mm. I don't see things that convince me. Would you like me to lie to myself and to you and just say I believe? Mm -hmm. What's achieved in that? I mean, a, you know, a person convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. Uh, I... I mean, to my family's credit, no one's ever asked me to just like, just believe, you know, turn off your skeptical approach and just say you believe, you know, like, I don't know what to, I don't know what to do about that otherwise, because it's just the the amount of evidence that should be there just is not there. Mm. I'm, I'm fine with saying that, okay, these people claim that they've seen that. I, you know, I, I can point towards a lot of other stories and a lot of other accounts of people that have claimed to see things that anyone who's producing, you know, New Testament Bible or Old Testament Bible, um, similar religions have claimed similar things. And I know there's arguments for why these are unique, but I'm sure there's arguments probably why those are unique. And it just goes round and round and round. It's all cryptic. It's all open to interpretation. And, you know, on these core principles of, of love and selflessness and everything else, you get no argument from me. I don't have a problem with these. Um, but like you're saying, the idea to mark someone as being a bad person for not believing or having too high of a standard for evidence to mark them as bad, that seems, why would you do that? You know, why would you why would you try to punish someone for not seeing the evidence as you do, you know? Um, yeah, that, that's a fair point that uh, is kind of an emotional burden placed on atheists within a culture of belief that probably not a lot of people are very sympathetic to sometimes, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, anything else that... that 
you would have thought would be interesting for us to yeah. touch on? Yeah, we, we kind of touched on how at, at about the same time, um, I took an interest in positive psychology and then mm-hmm. completely independently took an interest in uh, counter apologetics. Counter apologetics. Right. Well, philosophy, those, those yeah. debates that I started watching on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, but they converged while I was doing my master's degree in positive psychology. So positive psychology, de- can you define positive psychology? It's the me? study of positive characteristics. Mm-hmm positive emotions and positive institutions. Now by positive institutions, what do you mean by that? Uh, institutions which foster uh, greater health, greater well-being, greater productivity. And not, not, not to antagonize, but I mean, how do you determine what's good? We ask. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And there are certain things which almost every culture deems yeah, good. Right. There that's the thing that I keep seeing is like, right. well, there's a lot of commonalities, some very basic commonalities between all religions. But uh, but I'll point out, I mean, it's it's not an antagonistic question, but oddly enough we seem to only get asked that in either psychology or moral philosophy. Yeah. We don't we don't get asked that concerning medicine. You know, how do you know that health is better than sickness? We don't get asked that in engineering. How do you know know that a bridge that holds cars up is better than one that that collapsed? I mean, it's a fair question to say, how do you know that bravery is better than cowardice? Right. Well, that's just one of the axioms that we accept. Similarly, saying that if you're designing an aircraft, getting there faster and using less energy is better than getting there slower or crashing. Right, right. That's that's a you know we just accept axiomatically yeah. that an airplane which gets to where it's supposed to do get go is is better so right. you know that it's it's an axiom Maybe it's of, better that all of us <laughs> die and this planet right. not be <laughs> raped by us but but to get back to how those those two converged um, I started studying positive psychology in 2012 and at that time. There were some states where same-sex marriage was legal mm-hmm. and some states where it was not. And this was an issue. And how do you hotly, define it as positive? It was hotly contested. Yeah, yeah. Um, and nobody knew whether we were going to be a country that, at a national level, accepts same-sex marriage. Now, from a positive psychology standpoint, the answer was obvious that there's only benefit, psychological benefit, health benefits, um, to allowing same-sex marriage, to allowing homosexuals to have equal rights as heterosexuals. Right. And other than some obscure, nonsensical, secular argument, the opposition to same-sex marriage was almost entirely religious. Oh, yeah. I, and I went from being a how quiet, could there be an argument against it that was not religious? I've heard a few, but not they're not worth bringing up. Okay. It's, it's a separate. <laughs> um, and you know, go figure why this became a bee in my bonnet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it drove me nuts, right? Because it was just somebody who was studying it scientifically, 
the answer was just so obvious. Right. And the only opposition was religious. And I thought about how can I undermine these religious arguments? And the only way that you can undermine the religious arguments is, well, no, not necessarily. Really? Because some suffering may be necessary for a greater good. And the greater good may be the afterlife. Now, in undermining the religious arguments, the only way that I could do this was to undermine all of religion. Right. Which undermines the good aspects of religion as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Hmm. I mean, I, I can't argue that one religious interpretation is better. Uh, let me, I shouldn't use the word better because I do think that some religious interpretations are morally better than others. I can't argue that some religious interpretations are more valid than other religious interpretations because in my view, they're all invalid. As an atheist. Right. Right. They're all invalid. Right. And that's valid. where I, that's where I had to go. I, I, couldn't rationally take the position that, okay, I'll give you God's existence, I'll give you the validity of whatever scripture you believe in, you have the wrong interpretation. Right. So you're at a point of positive psychology working to... uh, The idea of positive psychology is positive, meaning lessening human suffering and increasing human flourishing. Yeah, that, that's one of the things is, is, that positive as a psychology general, has an interest in, yeah. Yeah, as, as defining positive anyways. Sure. Right. And to me, it's always been an argument from a position of the, the way through which, the culture through which I previously held a, you know, a view on God, whatever that is, right, was centered on the story of Jesus who seem to have an emphasis on lessening human suffering. Could, you could argue that. And I can see where these things align, where you can make an argument to, all right, we know through science that we have, um, you know, uh, social sciences, that if people are ostracized from peer groups or family groups or social groups that it causes distress and, you know, uh, suicide rates increase, uh, you know, harmful drug use increase, all these negative aspects of quantifying positive increase, you know. Um, So you could say human suffering is increasing in these communities where they uh, disapprove of, ostracize, and do not legitimize um, individuals that are born into those communities as gay. Um, and so by your own, you know, arguments, speaking to the religious communities, um, you're increasing human suffering, uh, with the information that you now are holding that, I mean, every time I've gotten, uh, relationally close enough to an individual that's gay i'll i'll ask them because i growing up i was i never had any gay friends or anything else (laughs) amazing in a religious community right that like 
when did you know you were gay? How did you know? Blah, blah, blah. And, and I look back on grade school and, and there was, there was a couple, one kid that we knew like, well, obviously, yeah, you know, he's gay. And he was like the nicest kid. And he was not a pervert like these other kids that were heterosexual that were just like turning the air blue. He was, he was just, you could tell by stereotypical means, this guy was gay, great kid, nice kid, not hurting anyone, you know? Um, but because of the religiously held beliefs and the culture of that insulated environment, his suffering was going to increase in his life because of the rejection of his community and everything else. Human suffering was increasing through religious practice. And it seems like there's a responsibility on the people that are in those communities to say we need to hold our religious beliefs as something that we uh, marry with what we know now scientifically and through experience of other people to know that these people are simply born this way and there's really no there's obviously no changing that we've had mm-hmm. experience with pray the gay away and everything else it doesn't work not only um, does it not work it's harmful it's harmful yeah and it seems like you can make the argument to say by your own standards lessen human suffering by simply accepting and loving these people um to me that's that's the approach that has to be taken with people who insist on still believing um but you know as you were saying earlier that the i don't you know i don't think religion will ever really truly go away um because we'll always kind of hold some idea potentially what's out there and it will always be kind of a thing scratching at the back of our head to encourage us to Mm -hmm. kind of project what that might be, you know? And I think that's kind of what religion is, is a projection of what we think might be out there. And many of us like to solidify what we think might be out there as a means of comforting ourselves. Man, I'm condescending to (laughs) so many people that are listening to this right now. I apologize, but I'm just being honest with what I think. And so that makes me a terrible person deep down. I don't know. But a lot of this is just me coming to terms with you know, my own process of what I've gone through and where I've, where I've come. But uh, so those intersected positive psychology and um, philosophy, the, the yeah. videos on YouTube that you're, I've been watching yeah. tons and tons. And a couple of books. Of those. It's amazing to me how much more you can learn in this day and age because of YouTube. Like you just yeah. get a stream of all these things that you can now watch and it, it goes both ways. I've run into a lot of really weird religious, you know, rants on, on, on some of these things on YouTube too. But, um, so are there any other ways that the positive psychology and philosophy, um, came together, uh, in, in remarkable ways in your life there? Or? Haven't thought about that question before, and I'm sure yeah. if I think about it, I can come up with some really interesting. <laughs> but you, you at that answers. point looked at the situation with uh, the gay community and legalization of marriage for gay and everything else, and then said, "All right, 
the uh, philosophy is, is part of the approach to dealing with this discrepancy between religious groups refusing or attempting to make this not legal uh, and preventing um, a normalcy for these people. Right. Well, the the interest in um, in supporting same-sex marriage was, uh, well, there's evidence, uh, sociological and psychological, that it's beneficial. Um, there's political philosophy, which argues in favor of equal rights. Oh, yeah. uh, there's, there's evidence that people now, who are, do not have equal rights will, will suffer just by virtue. Right. It's kind of like a, like, having, uh-huh, you can't have it. It's right. up here. Like, that seems trite. And, right. and just mean and philosophically, to me. that's not nice. <laughs> now, <laughs> I like to revert to the philosophy of that's not nice. <laughs> so walk me through the, the sociological impact of, uh, of the negative aspects of the sociological, sociological impact of not allowing gay marriage for the individuals in the gay community that it's said, nope, can't have Oh, it. sure. I mean, there, there's, um, I'm not, only remember the broadest of strokes that sure. uh, there's evidence that uh, getting married does have a causal effect. A on, causal effect on well-being, yep. not just a correlation. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's known that a the, healthy the, the correlation. <laughs> well, we can parse that out. Yeah, um, people who are married tend to be healthier and happier than those people who are not married. Mm-hmm. Now, you can argue, well, how do we know that marriage causes happiness? I think most people would rather marry a happy person than somebody who's unhappy, so it could be that happiness causes marriage. <laughs> uh, and yep. the way that you would answer that question is by doing a long-term study which measures people's happiness um, at different time periods so if somebody sure. is generally okay. at level i'm making these numbers up if somebody's generally at level five happiness and then gets married and then the happiness jumps up to let's say seven for at least a couple of years and then five years later might go back down to six right um, but probably won't go all the way back down to five right okay so that's evidence that marriage has a causal effect unhappiness and i think it's an entirely plausible hypothesis that happiness has a causal effect on on marriage as well it could be bi-directional that way hmm. okay i can't remember what caused us to digress to that <laughs> i can't <laughs> what um, was the original topic oh the societal benefits of happiness yeah yeah, yeah what are the what are the negative effects uh, well, okay, so you're basically reserving this social arrangement being legitimized by the state and the federal government. Mm-hmm. This social arrangement is beneficial to people when it's recognized within the community. Yeah. Um, so it, it should be available uh, to people that love each other and want to be in that relationship now is is there is there an 
argument that because I know within the religious community there's like, well, why don't we just make make it a thing that could be only for religious groups, right? So you could have a human yeah. we're married in a humanist church, but the federal government doesn't recognize sure. people as married or not married. Everyone's just a civil union if they sure. want it. Is I, that like is there some side effect of that that uh is damaging in some way or yeah so that's rather than make that a religious argument right i'm going to strengthen their argument to an argument that i will find it more difficult to counter okay so rather than it being a religious argument i'm going to make it a libertarian argument mm, I like libertarian. and say what two people decide to do between themselves is nobody's business. Right. Government doesn't need to oppose it. Government doesn't need to sanction it. Government doesn't need to do anything. A marriage today, as things stand, is a legal arrangement sanctioned by the government to share property and certain other rights as right. regards to your children and decision-making if somebody's incapacitated. So a libertarian would argue that any two people who want to have that arrangement should be able to engage in a legal contract arranging all those things, and they can put in love and cherish if they want to into the contract right. <laughs> and draw it up, and it can be legally binding, and there's absolutely no reason whatsoever for the government to get involved. Mm -hmm. okay, that's a very difficult argument to counter. Right. And that sounds like civil un like the government only recognizes civil unions. Well, no, the government doesn't have to recognize anything other than the fact that there's a legally binding contract. Right. I mean, you can call it a civil Which union. I would call a civil Sure, yeah, sure. Okay. We can de we can define it that way just Okay. So, so we know what it is the government is is recognizing. Um what that comes down to whether you believe that should be the government position on marriage uh, or whether you, you are not inclined to agree with that comes down to a value system. Um, I'll, I'll define it this way. One of the things that a just society does is it finds it's looking for the optimal balance between protecting individual rights and promoting the general welfare. Right. Those two concepts are sometimes at odds. Yeah, I mean, the federal government had to step in and force integration right. in the South. They didn't want it as a state, as local communities. The majority, which was mm -hmm. white, and or the people that had power, didn't want it. And the federal government had to say, this is, we are going to overpower this and we are going to force sure. you to for the the greater good now if you lean towards believing the Ameri that the government should really only be involved in protecting individual rights if that's your value system well mm -hmm. first of all you're more likely to be a libertarian and you're more likely to say government shouldn't be involved in marriage at all right if you just hold a different value system and say, well, I believe that the government should be promoting the general welfare, then you, would, you might oppose that position that the government should not be involved in marriage because there are benefits 
the being marriage. If you can increase somebody's health, if you can increase somebody's happiness, why shouldn't the government sanction right. those kind of relationships? Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, when you get down to legislating, it's uh, my wife likes to say that it's uh, it's just an extension of your morals. I agree. And it's uh, it's hard because I I guess it comes down to my primary moral moral is the you know the respect of the autonomy and the freedom of others. Mm-hmm. Um, you know I. I, I would pin the same responsibilities on a, a heterosexual couple as I would on a on a gay couple that you know I'd I'd rather you know not catch you guys having sex here or there or anywhere. That's what the privacy of your home is for, both heterosexual on the park blanket or whatever, or the gay couple on the park blanket or whatever. Just that you know my my main moral is that let's just. I'll agree on a uh, a civil discourse. You know, you go to a Latin American country, people make out in the park far more than they do here. You mm-hmm. know, it's just a it's a cultural norm that's a little more there than it is here. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. It's a different culture. If I want to move there and experience that, I can. If I want to go to maybe in Germany, they all march everywhere they go and they don't hold hands. I don't know. <laughs> but... Yeah, it, it it you gotta just. It's hard. You have to just determine what your primary core value is and operate and vote from that. And even if you're taking, it seems a biblical perspective. You know, at the highest, highest, or deepest level, uh, the deepest biblical principle was the respect of choice and autonomy. Um, Calvinists would argue Wait, that you don't have choice. You, sorry, can you can you say that again? That the principle of choice is well, from a biblical perspective, to me, it seems that the deepest, most important um, thing is that ability of choice, of, of autonomy and freedom to choose, because why? Why any of it if you don't have the ability to have free will in some way, right? From a from a biblical okay, I think I think I understand what you mean because there's there's two ways of interpreting interpreting that. How so? Which one is that the right to make choices is uh, sacrosanct. Mm-hmm. The other way of interpreting that is that the choices that you make are going to determine which side of good and evil you fall on. Right. And, and, and I think the primary the thing there is that you have the option within your own self to choose which way you go. That, that comes before that, right? It's an assumption, but the empirical evidence demonstrates that our ability to choose is limited and it's it's influenced by all kinds of environmental factors. Oh yeah. That if you if you are in an environment of scarcity, mm-hmm. it is far more difficult 
to choose not to steal. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, there's environmental factors, but you still have the ability to choose whatever you want. Um, it, maybe it, not even then. Through, I'm, not, I'm not sure that we have, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not even going to go to arguing against free will, which is... The, the free will debate, I found, yeah. is where real atheism <clears throat> and uh, spiritual thinking really intersect. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting conversation that I still don't have enough of a grasp on to really mm-hmm. get into. Um, I know Harris is, is a determinist, and I know on the same token, like Calvinists are... Right. It's one of their points of being Calvinist, is if you're a determinist, I think. Um, which is crazy to me that if you believe that there's a God that created billions of people and is going to burn them eternally by his own choice, it's like at some point you're worshiping a little kid with a magnifying glass burning ants. Mm -hmm. Why would you do that? (laughs) Well, I think the phrase losing one's temper is a really good example of the limitations of our ability to choose. There are some people who, when they're annoyed, can remain relatively calm. Mm -hmm. And there are other people who, with the same kind of annoyance, are going to have obscene levels of testosterone coursing through their bloodstream. But they will have the ability to choose to start to work on tempering that. There, I see. I see free will as. And now, uh, let me clarify. I'm not taking the deterministic position against free will. I could go there, but right. I, but that's a point of contention, and I don't want to argue something from a point of contention. Right. Let's just argue facts that everybody can agree on. That there are some people who I'm. I'm my example about losing one, one's temper mm-hmm. isn't to say that we can't choose. It's just to say that our choices are constrained and are limited. The, the person who has high levels of testosterone coursing through his bloodstream over some mild annoyance is not exercising choice in the same way as somebody who only experiences mild annoyance. Right. They they would have to work out more in that emotional cognitive realm right. to be able to achieve to be able to achieve the same end result. And it might and under certain circumstances, it might be impossible for them not to scream or hit somebody. Uh, in some circumstances yeah. at some points, sure. Yeah. yeah. I I uh to go back to the original point, though, I do, I do think that even from a biblical perspective, the highest value is respect of that autonomy, okay. that free will, that choice. Like we'll term it that while not really defining what will mm-hmm. and free even means, right? Like even from we're we're basically approach. I'm basically approaching this from a. Like, all right, we live in this uh, hallucination of having free will. And the respect of the autonomy of that Mm -hmm. would be the highest value that the Bible really 
communicates is that, you know, there's this, you know, kind of supernatural parent figure that does not force you one way or the other. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, you know, there's some pretty high consequences here and there. I'll give you that. (laughs) But by its own uh, definition or whatever, it, this supernatural entity would have the ability to come in and make you do this, that, or the other. And in some circumstances, you would argue that some would argue that God did come in and do that, like in harden Pharaoh's heart or whatever, Mm -hmm. which seems like a violation of free will. But, you know, I'm seeing that as a violation of of free will. Seeing that more (laughs) as a metaphor, because why would, why would a supernatural entity uh, imbue itself into humanity and give itself to die in that form as a means for people then to choose. It still comes down to this autonomy of choice, Mm -hmm. which at the same time, I don't know if you've practiced or attempted meditation. I call myself attempting meditation, but constantly getting sidetracked with monkey brain. Um, There is this striking difference between observing content this you know internal observer you have that is your consciousness compared to this river of thought that it is a kind of a rock in right Mm -hmm. and when it comes down to free will i always if i draw it out i see um you know all the thoughts desires circumstances and everything being a river running one direction and not having free will is just going with that river. That's all the deterministic things that are going to happen are going to happen. They're set in motion. Uh, the moment you exercise your free will is when you start to turn left or right to avoid things in that stream as you're going with it, or turn around and try and swim against it. You know, that's really the exercising of free will, exercising of choice, if you will. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, there you're in that deterministic flow of life and everything else. It's taking you down that river that you have no choice of being in. You just are in that river. Uh, But you do get to choose to go left or right or attempt to, and some people are going to be, their fins are going to be handicapped and they're only going to be able to swim in circles. I get it. Life's not fair, but you have the ability to swim against that you have and some people will be saddled with intense amounts of testosterone but also be given a huge amount of will to combat it i i know people in my own life who have had the living daylights beat out of them as children by their parents and for every um other roll of the dice for any other person on earth it seems they would have just turned out the worst person imaginable yet they're this incredible father and incredible person that has changed so many lives in spite of that there's just a will there that decided to i'm not going to let this continue on and Mm -hmm. that's uh to me something remarkable that's to me that's will and that's choice yeah at least um in that aspect. But to get back to what you said about that being the highest value of the, uh, of the Bible. Um, and that, that's what I mentioned earlier about it's all interpretation. Uh, yeah. Now, if, if you think that that's the highest value of the someone Bible, else will think something else. Yeah. That, that's fine. I'm, yeah. You know, there's worse <laughs> interpretations than that, yeah. but w- one could just as easily argue that the highest value of the Bible is submission to God's will and obedience 
Now, it's very easy for me to resolve that issue, um, but the theologians will be discussing this forever, and I don't think that either side is going to have a convincing argument of of what the highest value is. Well, and, see, even, and I'll also, but I would say that God's will is that you would respect the will of others, because that's first and foremost and ultimately what it did. It respected mm-hmm. that you have the ability to submit to that will, you know? So that still comes after that, in my opinion. I, I, have, to, <laughs> I have to frame everything right. with in my it, opinion. It doesn't it make sense to punish people for bad behavior unless they were able to choose Otherwise, good behavior. Good yeah. behavior. Yeah. I mean, to me, it, it seems like every point that could be made as the highest um, value of the Bible could mm-hmm. still uh, be made the case that it comes back to respecting of respect of the autonomy, you know, mm-hmm. of that as, as a founding principle on what is being discussed or you know, dealt yeah. with in that metaphor or anything else. So we could go on and on forever yeah. about that as the nations and times and whatever will, but, um, I will be getting in trouble soon. I'm sure. Woo. Wow. That's a long time. Um, how long were we talking? Oh, geez. Uh, we started at five third, like a little before five thirty, So a little over two hours. Um, supposed to sm- snow here tomorrow. No. Grief. That's no. what my friend texted me, yeah. Huh. Weird. I'll have to look into that. I was supposed to go to New York City tomorrow for a job, but I don't think we're doing that. So well, anyways, uh Aviv, I really appreciate you giving of your time and in your intellect and your experience and uh well, everything that you have you. learned. It's it's been really fun. Yeah. I'm I'm glad I I put this ad on Craigslist. I've had two other people as well respond. You're the first one I've talked to. Um, the other person that responded uh, was interestingly like halfway between mystic and materialist. And then uh, just, I think today, someone who seems far more on board with, um, you know, run-of-the-mill uh, Christendom, it sounds like, uh, is, 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 is excited to come and talk, which... Mm-hmm could also be very interesting potentially as well. Yeah. <laughs> but I I really I really enjoy just the conversation uh and and hearing of others experiences and really trying to understand the the points and arguments that other people have for it and I I think it's a really I th- I just think it's a really worthwhile conversation um all the way around no matter what you believe, as long as people can learn to talk about the difficult issues uh, respectfully. I yeah. think that's the biggest thing. So um, you've given me a lot to think about and really appreciate coming down. So, My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Yeah.